0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: It began as perhaps any Memorial Day weekend does for many of us. Plans to get away, enjoy three days off, spend some time maybe doing a bit of traveling, sightseeing, or just hang out with the family. That was certainly the plan in place for Brian Brown and his family as they set out Memorial Day weekend on a Saturday just a year ago to fly to Idaho to go visit a daughter. That weekend, though, turned out to be anything other than a happy one, though when everything was said and done, it certainly was demonstrative of God's keeping and saving power. Brian joins us tonight to share his story detailed inside the pages of a new book called Rescued, One Family's Miraculous Story of Survival. Brian, great to have you on the program.
2: Good evening, Craig. Thanks for having me. Well as we mentioned this
1: was Memorial Day of just a year ago in 2012 and uh, that Saturday you had plans to uh, get into your uh, your private plane I understand you're you're a private uh, pilot you've got a little Cessna 172 and I I guess in some respects that weekend might not have been different from any other when you hopped into the airplane to go take a equipped trip you were planning to head over to to Idaho to go visit your daughter Tabitha
2: That's right yeah it was a very routine trip, just like you had mentioned, uh, just like a lot of people make every day. And uh, we just had an unexpected turn of events, that's for sure.
1: Now, you're an experienced pilot. You've been flying for a lot of years. You've owned this particular airplane for a lot of years. While it's an older plane, it's it's a plane that you describe inside the pages of Rescued as one that's been very well maintained and has a, a history of reliability. And certainly, if there's any uh, pilots in the audience, they, they might know some of the history and reliability of the, the Cessna 172. You also come at this with a unique background in that... Uh, professionally you're you're a rescuer you work for the the fire department up in the uh, galt area which i think is a pretty close to put it in in perspective for our listeners here in this part of california you're up near roseville right
2: uh it's a little uh South
1: of Sacramento, actually. South of Sacramento. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, you work as a firefighter. You've been on search and rescue teams. You, you do this professionally and have for for many years. So some might think that this day would not only be a routine day in a reliable airplane that you had plenty of experience flying, but you're a guy that, gee, if you're going to be up in an airplane somewhere, I'd like to have you along with me. It's good. <laughs> it's, you feel good to have an experienced uh, firefighter and rescue person with you.
2: Yeah, it, it is a good combination, uh, especially after all of this. I could definitely vouch for that.
1: <laughs> this weekend, as I'm sure listeners have already figured out, though, didn't quite end the way you and your wife and daughter Heather had planned.
2: No, um, certainly not at all. We um, we had started our trip, and the the weather was absolutely crystal clear. It was a beautiful trip, uh, and. We were actually only about an hour away from our destination, and the weather had had turned very sour uh, to the point to where I couldn't see through the windshield. It was raining so hard. um, I couldn't see through the windshield, and it's, you know, not too uncommon to fly in some rain, um, but again, that's that's just out of the question to continue, and I had made an abrupt turn to get out of the out of the weather and then actually put the plane down in a small remote strip in Rome Oregon. Your
1: your your daughter from some of the turbulence I think uh, you account in the book at uh, well let's say when you're when your tummy is bothering you on a road trip you can find the nearest rest stop. It's kind of hard to do though when you're in an airplane, isn't it?
2: <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Yeah, she she got a little sick um, and uh, yeah, it was a really rough flight for her. And not being a real fan of flying to begin with, that certainly didn't um, didn't help any of the matters. That's for sure. Now this
1: is late May. This is this is good weather. I mean, we're yeah. into you know kind of the unofficial launch of summer, and it's it's uh, picnics and barbecues. You set out that morning in, in route to uh, as we say to Mountain Home, Idaho, to go visit your daughter Tabitha. Mm-hmm. There was no anticipation that you would find inclement weather along the way, was there?
2: Um, no, not not to the degree that we did. I, we knew that there was some weather out there because I did do some pre-planning and I did see some weather out there. But it was also all moving to the east the same direction we were. Mm. And, in, in fact, what some of my hopes were was that the weather would actually pull us faster across, you know, heading eastbound because we'd be kind of right behind that front.
1: I have the weather beat you, in other words, yeah.
2: Yeah, it, it would have it just really... Kind of slingshotted us right into where we needed to to be, and but in fact, what had happened was all that weather had stalled right in front of us.
1: Now you started out what time of day?
2: <clears throat> we started out first thing in the morning at about seven thirty.
1: All right. So with what I think is probably around of what four hour plane flight, mm-hmm. uh, you should have comfortably been there. You know, maybe maybe in time for a fashionably late lunch.
2: Yeah, that, uh, and that was the plans of our oldest daughter. Um, as a matter of fact, we had um, some loose plans of, of stopping into Boise for lunch at one of the, her favorite restaurants. And as the day progressed, obviously, all of our casual lunch uh, plans had changed as well. Yeah, and,
1: in fact, almost from the get-go, uh, yeah. there were a couple of things that transpired that, that maybe, what, is it fair to say in, in retrospect might have told you that this was not going to be a very good day?
2: Um. No, not totally. Um, I mean if you're you're referring to like the the battery, we had had a battery issue with the aircraft, and that's actually really common as well, especially during that time of the year uh, because we weren't in the flying season. We were just getting ready to to become into the the best flying season. And so I hadn't flown that much.
1: It's like, you know, car collectors in the audience that know that you got the baby uh, holed up in the garage for uh, good portions of the the week or the year and you take it out once in a while. And if you don't get a chance to turn over the engine with some degree of regularity, uh, engines get stiff and batteries go weak.
2: Yeah. And that's that's exactly where we were. Um, You know, so we had that that did delay us that day. I charged the battery first thing in the morning. Uh, because the plane just didn't have the power to actually uh, turn the engine over. Um, But once we had charged it, things were just fine. Um, And then we charged it again when we had stopped for lunch in um, Susanville, which is just right on the California, Oregon, or Nevada border.
1: So when did you finally then put out of the, the airport initially?
2: Uh, We pulled out of uh, Lodi right around 8.20, I believe.
1: Okay, so not too terribly delayed. No. But enough so that things then kind of began to uh, snowball, pardon the pun. (laughs) Uh, By the time you were kind of into the forced landing with your daughter um, uh, responding to the turbulence in uh, an unpleasant fashion... Uh, you sat down in an extremely rural area, didn't you?
2: Yeah, you know, and I, I explained it as uh, Rome, State, Oregon is is where the um, air, airstrip was, and it truly was exactly that. It was an airstrip uh, made of gravel. It was out in the middle of the field, literally in the middle of nowhere. No buildings, um, nothing for better than fifty miles around us. And um, I think the only thing we probably would have seen was the coyotes. So there's
1: no control tower there. There's no fuel or food services. There's literally nothing.
2: Literally nothing. There was a sign that described it as Rome State Airport and a place to actually tie the aircraft down, you know, to chain it down in case of, you know, bad weather and stuff. Mm-hmm. But that, that literally was it. And uh, This
1: is almost like a rest stop. <laughs> uh, you know, for for want of better uh, comparison for folks uh, in the audience that don't fly, but this is a rest, rest stop along the way that has absolutely zero services whatsoever. Not even a bathroom. Not even a bathroom. And you're putting down on gravel, which means that, you know, if you don't hit it right, uh, you can do some damage to the plane, I would imagine.
2: Right. Yeah, that was a major concern. Uh, when I flew over it, I, I looked at it and I told my wife and daughter, it's like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. But it was the only thing close and safe to put the plane down as quickly as I could.
1: You put it down, she got out, you cleaned things up, and then it became a waiting game for a while. Why?
2: Yeah, well, the weather truly was too bad to continue at that point. And we had had all the reservations of staying and actually sleeping in the aircraft right there in the middle of the field, Uh, because the weather just didn't look like it was going to turn in our favor. And we'd even called our oldest daughter, Tabitha, um, and told her, hey, we're, we're probably not going to be able to make it today. And she'd even made you know, the offer of, of driving out to get us. And for her, it would have been a six-hour drive even at that point for her to come and get us where it was only about a 50-minute flight for us to you know, direct line over the mountains and mm-hmm. right to Mountain Home. Uh, so we, we had actually reserved the thought of, of spending the night there. And, and truly, we're planning to do that. And then what happened was the weather, we had a huge change in the weather again, where it looked really clear and really good, and I'm looking at it thinking, well, we've got 50 minutes, I can make this flight, and when we proceeded on, the the flight was going really well up until we got over the Owyhee Mountains.
1: And, and, you know, maybe the big lesson here is that as fast as the weather can clear, (laughs) it can also get ugly again can't it oh absolutely Well, let's pick up that side of the story and the other side of the time out here because it 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 leaves us now this is like a good cliffhanger uh and you're going to have to wait to answer the doorbell before you can turn to the next page and find out what happened um as literally now we're kind of in the middle of this so the decision is made the weather has cleared it's only 50 minutes what possibly could go wrong in 50 minutes Oh, yes. The question of the ages. We'll get back to more of our visit today with Brian Brown, the book Rescued, One Family's Miraculous Story of Survival. I'm Craig Roberts. We'll get back back to more right after this.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is
1: every pilot's worst nightmare, a sudden change in the weather. Welcome back to our conversation. Craig Roberts along with Brian Brown. He has written a new book detailing his family's experiences of Memorial Day weekend of 2012. His book is called Rescued, One Family's Miraculous Story of Survival. So we pick things up. Brian, you decide there's a break in the weather. You only have 50-minute flight to be able to meet up with your daughter, Tabitha, there in Mountain Home, Idaho, so you're going to go ahead and uh, and chance it. Do you Are you trained or, or uh, licensed to fly with instruments?
2: I have some real brief training, but not licensed for it, no. Okay.
1: So uh, visual for you is really important.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it really is what kind of spelled out what happened to us um it was like I said, we, we took off from Rome, and things were going great. Uh, we were really right on schedule. Everything was fine. But then when we got over the Owyhee Mountains in Idaho, uh, one, the, the air started getting very turbulent, and then we literally had uh, clouds forming right in front of us. And as as I was watching them form on one side, I started veering off to the other direction, Some form to that to that new direction I was headed, and I thought, wow, we need to turn back again. And as soon as I'd looked to turn back, we were already completely closed in. Mm. And so, you know, in order to keep that visual like you were talking about, I was just underneath the cloud line, but just above the mountain ridge line. So within was in a very narrow margin of, of space, you know, to be able to um, fly safely, really. And um, what happened is after I went over that last ridgeline right before we crashed, I basically hit a, a mountain wave or an air current that ripped the airflow right out from underneath the wings.
1: Now, help us understand, for, for folks that don't, don't know quite all of the, uh, the mechanics of this, you, you suddenly begin losing lift, don't you?
2: Yeah, it's very quick. And, uh, I mean, it's like an undertow in the ocean. You know, you can feel it as a swimmer. And to a certain degree, I can feel it as a pilot under the controls, but where I really saw it was on my airspeed indicator.
1: The the yoke, does it start to fight you as you're...
2: It it gets a little mushy, yeah. Yeah. And um, so... You know, I, like I said, though, I saw it on the airspeed indicator. We were traveling at about 110 miles an hour, and it dropped to 40 in the snap of a finger. Ooh,
0: that's
1: like slamming the brakes on pretty quick when you're on the freeway.
2: Yeah. The problem
1: is, on a freeway, you've always got the option of veering off to the left or right and, and hopefully avoiding a crash. Kind of hard to do that when you're how many feet up in the air?
2: We were only about 900 feet above the ground level. Oh, boy. Wow. Yeah. And that's where... Um, When I saw that, I actually absolutely knew we were in trouble, and I had told my wife and daughter, I'm sorry, I don't think we're going to make it. I love you. And I had pitched the nose of the aircraft down into the canyon to try and get the airspeed back so the plane would continue to fly. Did it work? (laughs) It did. Um, Right before we um, got to the bottom, I was able to feel some control back in the plane and I pulled the nose of the plane up as abruptly as I could. Uh, we hit two trees with the wingtips, and uh, then smacked belly first into the next mountainside in front of us. Mm.
1: Your wife bought that airplane for you, didn't she?
2: She did. It was a it was a gift of love. And um, she
1: had to been having second thoughts at this point, though. So oh, as to the wisdom of that decision, huh?
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know if she did or not. You know, she. Um, we we can talk about that too a little bit later, but I I do know you know they both Heather and uh, and Jan have the utmost of confidence in my flying. Um, they they did in fact they said I flew that aircraft all the way down to the ground as far as I could, and um, it as as whatever comfort that, that that can offer it it did offer some.
1: Well, I guess at the end of the day, I mean there there's the pilot who flies a plane and crashes it. And survives, and the one who flies the plane crashes it, and doesn't. And I think the guy that managed to fly it, crash it, and yet have all three of you walk away from that crash, so to speak, uh, has got to say something to your uh, your pilot abilities.
2: Yeah, and that that is where the you know the FAA and the NTSB. When I talked to them, that's that is exactly what they said. Because I was fighting grief for a lot of this. I, I was the one behind the controls. I was the one that made all those decisions yeah. and. Um, I was really beating myself up pretty good over it, and um, you know they just they just walked me through the whole process, and and actually were are very forgiving. They said those exact words, you know, "Look, you flew that plane, and you you walked away from it along with along with all your passengers."
1: There's one other element, though, yeah, that we've kind of held back on for the moment, um, and I want to have you dive into that when we come back after a timeout. But the other element here. Um, while it is true that you were flying that airplane and making those decisions, <laughs> um, you weren't alone in that, weren't you? There there was someone else in control, too, wasn't there?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Let,
1: there let's let's find else. out who that was when we come back after a timeout. And, and the listeners are now wondering, well, gee, wife may be sitting in the co-pilot seat there beside him maybe she's got control of the yoke as well and is kind of making you know wives are good at telling husbands how to drive better and when it comes to directions by the way they're usually right uh but what of that other control we'll talk about that. that is our story with brian brown called rescued continues
0: and now back to lifeline with craig roberts
1: continue our conversation, Brian Brown is with us tonight. We're sharing details from the pages of his new book called Rescued, One Man Family's Miraculous Story of Survival. It started out as any other Memorial Day weekend. Plans to head off with this, one of his daughters and his wife to go visit, a daughter that lived in Mountain Home, Idaho. The plans, though, for that weekend changed quite drastically along with the weather. When we pick up the story last, Brian... Um, we talk about the fact that you you literally had a, a crash landing, although I don't even quite call it a landing. It certainly was not intentional. You you clipped a couple of trees with one of the wings. Is that what kind of started this?
2: Uh, we clipped a tree with each wing. Yeah, we, we'd lost about three to four feet of wing on, on both sides. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. So that, that that plane is in big trouble, and you, your daughter, and your wife are even in bigger trouble. You go from 130, 40 miles an hour to 40 miles an hour to zero miles an hour pretty quickly. What happened?
2: Well, yeah, like we like we had discussed, we, um, we went down into the canyon. We, we pitched the nose up at the last minute when I got control back of the aircraft and then smacked belly first into the mountainside, and then from that point, um, actually, uh, our world, world kind of went black. Uh, my wife and I, uh, Jay-Ann and I, were knocked out completely, uh, me only for really a couple of seconds. Uh, and then the next thing I knew, I, I, I kind of snapped awake and thought, wow, we're alive. I was just, here was the first miracle. We, we lived through this. Uh, like you said, a crash landing in the mountains is, is usually fatal and uh, mostly fatal most of the time, and, and here I am, I'm, I'm alive. And then the next thing I had heard was Heather, my, my youngest daughter, yelling, you know, mom. And when I looked over at J.N., uh, Heather was had a hold of J.N.'s shirt and was keeping her from falling out of the aircraft, because on impact, the door on J.N.'s side had ripped off, and J.N. was not completely unconscious and limp like a rag doll falling out of the aircraft. Mm. And so my immediate thought was, "Oh, I I just I killed my wife." I mean, I I just was was terrified, and um, but I kind of snapped into rescuer mode at that point, and had grabbed grabbed a hold of JN's shirt, pulled her back into the aircraft, and had noticed that she had deep snoring respirations, and her eyes were kind of just rolled into the back of her head, and and you know I just. You know, I was doing everything I could to get her airway open and, and keep her with us. And now, is the
1: airplane at this point, Brian, physically on the ground or up in the trees?
2: Oh, it's on the ground. Okay. Yeah, we had we had kind of just planted belly first, pretty securely into the ground at that point, and it, it wasn't going anywhere.
1: You're you're on top of a mountain in cold weather. Yeah, in the
2: dark. Uh, wasn't quite dark yet, but getting there, yeah. Okay.
1: Um, and I would imagine upon crashing, uh, that probably left a lot of the the plane inoperable. And by that, I mean uh, communication systems, anything of like that. So was any of that working?
2: Uh, no, it wasn't. And uh, that was, you know, once I got JN back with us, that was the vex, very next order of business. You know, I checked on Heather and made sure she was fine. And then Heather actually helped me get some of my equipment out of my flight bag that was that had slid back into the tail cone on the crash, uh, and uh, one of those things happened to be my portable aviation radio.
1: Nobody had any broken bones?
2: Uh, yeah, we actually did. Um, I broke my, my right arm, I broke several ribs, my nose, uh, I had a deep laceration all the way to the bone on my uh, left arm, and I had a pretty good laceration on my left leg also. Uh, and. Jan and I both went into the windshield, so with me, I actually, I was bleeding pretty heavily at that point. Uh, I took over 150 stitches into my head to get me all uh, secured up later.
1: You're you're running the risk of bleeding out.
2: I was bleeding pretty good, yeah. Um, Really, the least of my worries. (laughs) Uh, But once Heather found that portable radio for me, I turned it on to make sure that my emergency beacon on the aircraft was working. And to me, that was one of the next miracles is it was. It was sounding off like it's supposed to. Um, otherwise, you know, I'd have to physically put it together and make it make it activate. Um, and then from that point, I actually took the radio and it, with a, a bunch of argument from Heather, um, I walked up the mountainside about two or 300 yards and tried to transmit a mayday. Any luck? No. Unfortunately, none.
1: Uh, you're you're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You really don't. I would imagine. Did you have any kind of bearing as to even where you were?
2: Uh, real, real slight bearing as far as where I was. You know, I had a direct line um, rerouted from when I sat at Rome, uh, Oregon, to you know, I I refixed another line of of flight because obviously we were way off all my other flight plans. Sure. And of course,
1: the problem is even if you know where you're at, how do the rescuers yeah. know yep. where you're at? You talked before the break about the the uh, the unseen hand in all of this.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, there. Again, you know, from the very first when I looked at the the thought and I opened my eyes, it was like, wow, this is an absolute miracle. Somebody was somebody was controlling this aircraft along with me that that helped us land in a way where the aircraft was all in one piece the entire aircraft was within a 50 foot radius all the pieces parts everything and that's just unheard of and so again you know what you know there there was something that that has no earthly ep- explanation that was controlling that aircraft for us that that got us down safely to survive.
1: In retrospect, is it fair to say that you had perhaps significantly underestimated God in all of this?
2: Oh, there's no doubt that I had significantly underestimated God. Yeah. It's it's very embarrassing at this point, you know, in my life to admit that. You know, was not a real praying man or anything like that, but There was absolutely no doubting it.
1: I I, I guess this is another example of what's the saying in in, in foxholes and, I guess, plane crash sites. There are few atheists to be found.
2: (laughs) Yes, very true. And, and again, it's what drove me to write the book because... the the media looked at the cell phone, you know, because that was another miracle in and of itself. Well,
1: let's let's talk about that for a minute, because this this is probably one of the most astonishing parts of this story. <laughs> Everybody listening right now knows that you can be in the most logical location. And all of a sudden, there's no cell service. Anybody care to tell their experiences driving across the Dumbarton Bridge? You know that one little stretch that I'm talking about? Yeah, people are nodding their heads. Where all of a sudden, inexplicably, you lose the call. Every day, you can do it like clockwork. You know exactly where it's going to be, where you're going to lose the call. You're in the middle of nowhere. That's right. You, you, you know, can see no lights from where you're at. There's no sense of a sign of, uh, of, of a civilization anywhere. It's not like, well, down at the edge of the foot of the hill here is a little town. There was nothing visually within sight, and yet, miraculously, your daughter, Heather, had a cell connection?
2: Yeah. It actually was my wife's phone, J.M.'s phone. But, yeah, um, and who it was was Tabitha. She was trying to find out why we hadn't made our destination yet. But, you know, this is a couple of hours after we, you know, we're sitting in the aircraft. It's at midnight at this point, and things are pitch black. Like you said, there's no lights. There's no civilization. There's nothing. We're freezing already because it is snowing on us at this point. And in the middle of that dead, quiet silence the cell phone rings and we we literally sucked all of the air out of the aircraft when we gasped
1: oh you hadn't even tried the cell phone
2: we didn't know they were there they when we crashed you know things went flying throughout the the wreckage and the phones ended up on the floorboard of the aircraft. And you had to
1: have been thinking, even if you knew it was there, uh, what's, the, what's the likelihood of getting a cell even one bar in the middle of nowhere?
2: Exactly right. Because, again, even in my own living room, a lot of times my cell phone won't work. And, uh, I, I, again, it was just, it, it left me speechless at the moment. I, I couldn't believe it. It was like, how in the world do we get a cell phone signal deep in, the, in a mountain canyon in a, in a snowstorm? You know, it just—it was just a, an absolute miracle.
1: Now, putting aside for the moment, uh, you know, the great advertising for your cell phone carrier that would say, <laughs> "You know, we cover the whole country," um, aside from maybe a, 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 a technological attempt at an answer in the in, in the in the depth of your heart. What's the answer to that question for you, Brian, as to how in the world did you get a cell phone service in the middle of nowhere?
2: Well, again, the only thing I could do, in my mind, I visualize God's finger on wherever the closest cell tower was and the other one on our phone. Because it wasn't like the phone really worked well. It worked just enough to get the information that we needed out. And, and, you know, so it, it... it made the, the 911 call and allowed us to say about where we were and it, it worked again a couple of more times that I, I don't really want to get too deep in because it, it tells, it, it'll make your jaw drop when you read the story. What the other times that it worked and and I can tell you that if the phone had worked that well, I'd have been ordering hot chocolate and blankets. But it, <laughs> it just wasn't yeah. doing it.
1: <laughs> Hello, Domino's, do you deliver?
2: <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. But it, it didn't do that. The, the phone didn't work that way. The rescuers' phones didn't work that way. And the rescuers' radios, their powerful radios wouldn't even work out of that. It was
1: amazing about this, Brian, is the fact that it, it, it didn't work that way, but it worked just Enough. Exactly. Isn't it amazing the way God will allow a circumstance and uh, there is just enough, and the rest is completed by our faith. Yeah, exactly the rest right. is completed by his grace.
2: Exactly right.
1: This, I would imagine, has had a profound change in your thinking, and I, I want to come back to that point of the story right after a quick time out. Uh, so imagine there you are on a hillside of a mountain. It's dark. It is cold. You are in the middle of literally no man's land. You can see lights of no community anywhere within uh, your your vision. Um There's no payphone available. The radio is not working. It's snowing. You kind of know maybe where you are, but you're the only one, even if you do, because certainly nobody else does. And all of a sudden you get cell service out of nowhere. We'll pick up the amazing conclusion to this story as this edition of Lifeline
0: continues.
1: Welcome back to the conversation. A a great tune from World War II. And, of course, uh, any uh, aviators out there or pilots know what that means, coming in on a wing and a prayer. And certainly that's exactly, I think, the story of Brian Brown and his family. Uh, They literally came in on a wing, or, in fact, not even on a wing. They had two broken wings. Uh, But God was with you, Brian, through this entire experience. Let's pick up where we left off. The cell phone starts ringing. Miraculously, it might be one bar, but you're able to communicate. You're able to reach out and get some help. Pick it up from there.
2: Yeah, it was uh, was one bar, and it was an intermittent one bar and on a dead battery. I mean, the battery was in the red on the phone. It was really in its worst-case scenario. And Heather did just an awesome job talking with the dispatcher. And I tell you, it was... At that point, we we were freezing, broken, and scared, and we heard the voice of Lori Collins from the Hawaii County Dispatch uh, Center uh, tell us "911, what's your emergency?" and it was just an immediate "Oh, you know, thank you, God, somebody knows we're out here," and um, you know that's where things really started. And um, again, the, the the media really focused on that being the miracle of the whole thing, but. In fact, you know, when you read the book, you will just see miracle after miracle after miracle, and, and we've described a few of them on the phone here. Um, but the, it, it just is absolutely amazing how many more miracles fell down the line uh, in this in this entire. Um, Event.
1: How did they manage to rescue you? You're you're in fairly rugged terrain there, so it's not like they can just you know send the ambulance up the side of the hill.
2: <laughs> no, and it's funny because that's exactly what they had originally said was we're we're sending four wheel drive trucks up and 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 uh, like quads, you know, four wheel drive units. And I'm sitting there, what I did know of the train, and thought that's impossible. You need to send a helicopter. And um, sure enough, that is what they ended up finding out they needed to do was um, they were able to get uh, the permission from the Idaho National Guard to bring a a crew over uh, that had a hoist and could actually hoist us off the mountain one by one. Mm -hmm. And and that's truly how we got out of there. They they put us in a basket and hoisted us up a cable into the helicopter and then flew us over to another ridgeline about a mile away. And then transferred us from their helicopter to a, a medical evacuation helicopter.
1: All of you obviously survived. Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit worse for wear for the experience physically, um, but the miracle really here is that you survived.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest miracle is we survived that that whole event. Um, and again, when you when you read the book and you dissect everything that happened for us for us and the rescuers even in our favor and it was why we we chose to make sure that the rescuers had some some input in this book because they were experiencing things too on their way to get us that you know they sit back and talk now and and the the word keeps coming out and I heard you even say it it, it just makes me laugh uh, in a good way that you know, wow that word wow comes out and it, it 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 just really makes you feel wonderful you know that that we were so well taken care of like you said somebody else was totally in control and totally orchestrating that thing perfectly how
1: has this changed you you mentioned at the get go Brian that you were not particularly uh, overtly religious individual or or a, a praying man i think is what you said right. how has this changed your life in that regard
2: well i tell you i would have never i don't i don't think i would have ever talked like this over the air to you know millions of people and i'm 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 not afraid at all to to give credit where the credit was due here i mean it it is there's just absolutely no doubt in my mind where all the credit was for us to be able to come out of this this event alive and and in really such good shape i mean i i I just know that's the biggest thing about me i i I don't think I would have done it before, and now I have zero hesitation about it. I'm, I'm very proud to say that, you know, there's a God out there, and he is taking care of us. He's watching us all the time. We just have to pay attention to when those, things, when those instances come.
1: Um, has this changed your life in other ways? I mean, I, I would imagine living through an experience like this, you get up every day with a whole different attitude.
2: Yeah, you know, um, again, especially because of my career, I do see a lot of, um, I see a lot of times where people don't make it. Yeah, and it's it's a very hard situation, um, truly, to deal with uh, at this point because, of course, I believe my wife and daughter are very special, um, but but I look at the whole thing and, and we don't really consider our, ourselves as special people and that we got special preference, you know, to be saved or spared. And so, you know, when we see somebody that doesn't make it or, or hasn't been had the opportunity to be spared um, that is a struggle. That that still is a struggle.
1: Yeah, and it's probably true for for every person in the in the, the rescue field, right? Um, and and although I, I bet a special experience too for you, having spent a career as the rescuer, and now you have also been on the the receiving side of being the rescuee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It,
2: well, and that was a very big moment. You know, you you yourself earlier had said, you know, well, weren't. We're, Weren't didn't you have broken bones? Weren't you injured? And I was working through that entire event, you know, in that rescuer mode, all the way up until I saw the very first rescuer face to face, and that's when I realized. Well, one, I didn't want to be a rescuer anymore. You know, it was a. Oh, thank goodness I can be a a victim. Yeah. Now and all my adrenaline, everything that was charging me and keeping me going to try and keep us alive, had. All that was gone. I mean, I was in some considerable pain at that point, and um, we'd we'd looked at my arm and actually realized it was broken at that point. I didn't even know it was broken until I saw that first rescuer.
1: To the atheist that comes to you and says, So, Brian,
2: I I don't believe that there's any God. What do you say to that person? Well, I tell them, you know, I, I sure hope God doesn't make them crash into the side of a mountain, um, like they did me. Um, I can't, I wouldn't say I was an atheist or had atheist thought or belief, but, you know, I mean, and that sounds pretty harsh and tragic, but in this, I, I, I say that with a, a loving smile on my face. Please don't make God slam you into the side of a mountain to open your eyes and see that he's there. Because if he needs to do that, he will yeah you know, to to get your attention
1: and and he 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 certainly got your attention in this experience, didn't he?
2: absolutely he did <laughs> has
1: this changed also your relationship with jn your wife?
2: um I'd say we're we're definitely much closer right at right after the accident you know during our healing um j n and Heather and Tabitha all of us we we had a whole year of firsts again if you know what i mean of, here's our first birthday after the accident. We're so grateful we had it. Um, you know, first anniversary after the accident, first Christmas, New Year, all those things. Um, they were very significant mile markers that year because we realized how, how we all were, were about to be stripped of all of those things.
1: Memorial Day weekend will never be the same for your family, will it?
2: No, no. It, well, and it, it's definitely a, a memorial event. Um, we, we do... You know, we have put a lot of it behind us, and, and um, we definitely are finding fun things to do as a family together, but we, we do spend that day together as much as we can.
1: Now, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, what was the, the ultimate disposition on uh, that little Cessna 172 you called Lima?
2: Yeah, she unfortunately will never be airborne again. Um, <laughs> she really held herself together for us. Uh
1: now you you got to tell me that at least there's there's something the nose cone or something that you've saved.
2: Well, I have um, I have the the GPS unit that was in there. Okay, uh, they they let me have that back because I did need it to do a lot of my reports. Sure, but unfortunately, no. Uh, you know that was something really hard for me. Uh, like you, we had discussed before, that was a love gift from my wife. She bought it for me for my fortieth birthday. And uh, she was the last thing I saw as they were carrying me over to my uh, spot to be hoisted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was my release, uh, my stress release in life up to that point. That's what I, you know, if I had a rough day at work or just a rough week. I would go out and fly. And, you know, as soon as I started the motor on Lima, I was fine. You know, I'd, I was focused in my flying and. Uh, you know, that's, that was where I found my release.
1: Are the flying days behind you now?
2: Oh, no. I actually started flying again back in uh, March of, of this year.
1: Horse kicks you off, you get back up on it.
2: Oh, absolutely. And You know what I, it, because I, I actually have been flying since I was 16 years old. And uh, it, it's like the firefighting. I've been doing it for over two decades. It's in my blood and I can't stop. You know, it, I, I love both of those things so much. Uh, it, it's just in my system, and I have to, it, it's a part of me.
1: Well, and I certainly hope the listeners will hear uh, the passion that you have, not only for flying, um, the passion for God, certainly the way in which this experience, you know, some of these are life-ending, this has been a life changing experience, and we've we've kind of skimmed over some parts of the book, because I don't want to ruin it for listeners, but I want to encourage folks, if you're looking for some real encouragement, particularly for uh, the atheist on his way to the foxhole, this is a great book. It is published by our friends at Harvest House. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. I think there's one or two of those left. Certainly through Amazon.com, and I want to thank Brian Brown for being with us tonight, sharing his story, Rescued.